Hi everyone, I'm Jessica Minhaza. Welcome to All Grow First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. In this episode, we want you to please be advised that we will be talking about potentially triggering topics like child abuse, sex abuse, and incest. If you do not feel comfortable, please stop listening. There will also be supportive resources included in the links below if you do decide and if you'd like to share support for yourself or for someone that a loved one in your life. This conversation is super special to me. I am joined by my childhood friend, literally childhood friend from middle school, Michelle Ross. We have known each other like literally since we were 12. She traveled all the way from Ohio to our studios in New York City while pregnant with twins because she wanted to share her very, very personal journey through childhood abuse, incest, how she overcame all of that, and what making meaning of her story has meant for her and now what giving back to the world looks like. It's an amazing conversation. It's really inspirational. Again, we do talk about some really triggering subjects. So check in with yourself and decide if you're ready for that. I think it's an amazing conversation and I'm really, really excited to hear what you think about it. Hi, I'm Jessica and welcome to All Grow First. Today is so special because I'm joined by my middle school best friend. We have been friends for over 20 years, which is really crazy. Time flies. Michelle Ross, outside of being a very dear friend and probably helping keep me alive <laughs> for most of my adult life, she is the founder of One Worry Less. She's going to tell you a little bit about it. But this conversation is going to be very, very honest and very transparent. And so I wanted to offer that up to our listeners that there might be some trigger warnings in here. So if at any time you feel like you should stop listening, please do. Because <laughs> we're, we're going to cover some topics that are just hard to talk about. And that's really our intent with Algor First is to support people putting words to what's happened and journey with them as they pursue healing. So Thank you, Michelle, for joining us, and I'm really excited to hear your wisdom on your story. But can you tell us first, what is One Worry Less? It's a nonprofit that's going to offer up not permanent housing, but more permanent than, say, like Ronald McDonald House for families who have are experiencing a medical crisis. So think kids going through cancer, maybe a family member has had a major heart condition that takes some recovery time, and... I think that often the help that's offered to these people is financial to help cover the bills that they have, but a lot of times their homes aren't healthy places to be. So I want to offer renovated homes that are healthy homes, you know, that operate with upgraded HVAC and just a better place for somebody who may be immunocompromised or what have you to be. And for them to stay and be able to focus on getting better. I think that's like a really big problem when we talk about coming out of those hard circumstances. Really, it's housing. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when we talk about young people who have unfortunately been sexually exploited and who are under the age of 18, ultimately, a lot of what drives um, young people into that outside of trauma is the lack of housing. And so it really becomes an issue of them trying to survive. And so I think housing, it's amazing that you're focused on housing. You are also a surrogate mom. You are sitting across from me right now, pregnant with twins. <laughs> this is going to be your, is this your fifth surrogacy? It's fourth surrogacy. And it'll be fifth and sixth babies. And it will, fifth and, oh my goodness gracious. Oh my gosh, that is <laughs> so much when you talk about surrogacy, I, I love your approach on it. Why do you do surrogacy? When you're trying to give into something or into someone, there's always kind of a receiver and a giver and somebody is always kind of sacrificing something. And it probably sounds funny for me to say that I don't feel like that's the case when I'm walking around waddling with twins. But in surrogacy, everybody comes out feeling like they gained something. And so it's something that I can do as an adult that pours into somebody else's family for something that they wanted desperately that I also get to walk away from afterwards. And I have gained extended family and a new relationship and 
just a sense of putting some good out into the world. So it's a little selfish, I guess. But. No, I don't think so at all because I, I remember when you first started in your mid-20s when I asked you because I was like, why on earth would you want to put your body through that? And you said, you know, this is – what greater gift can I give to somebody than family? Mm-hmm. And I just – I loved that approach. So let's start from the beginning. Do you remember when we met in middle school? We were, yeah, we would have been 11, yeah. I don't remember that. Do you remember anything? I just know that we were in my favorite teacher's class is where we met, Miss Yusufo. Oh, Miss Yusufo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, Miss Yusufo. You know, and we and got sat still, at the same table. Oh, she and I are still in touch. Yeah. She's so special to me. That is, yes, shout out to Miss Yusufo. I can't wait for her to hear this. <laughs> I just want to dive right into your story because I think it's so powerful. What was your life like outside of school? I did, I don't think that I knew so much at that time, but it was already in complete turmoil. You know, I had I had a mother at the time who clearly did not like me one bit. And and because of that, I was looking towards my adoptive father for, you know, that support from a parent and that love from a parent. And he had taken that opportunity to begin grooming me. So it was very inappropriate and it wasn't healthy. And so that kind of byproduct of that was that I was a really sad kid and I didn't even know why. Your adopted dad came into your life when you were three. Yeah, two slash three, yeah. So he really served as your father. Yes. Why do you think, like, how did you know that your mother didn't like you? What is what it's what does that mean for you? I think it actually started fairly young. I think that I was a smart kid. I was really observant. She is very very <laughs> smart. I was really outspoken too about what I felt like, you know, wasn't right or was right or what didn't seem like okay. And so, you know, she wasn't a nice person in general to her children and I stood up for my siblings and therefore Why did you have to stand up for them? What was happening? Well, it, There was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of corporal punishment, you know, hitting in the house and a lot of just emotional abuse. You know, they didn't just yell at you because you had done something bad. You would get yelled at and then called a name and told why you were terrible or, you know, you were such an awful kid to have around. You know, I can remember one time sitting there and listening to my mother screaming at one of my little brothers because he couldn't learn to read. And And how old is your brother – when she's having this um, outburst. So he he would have been, I want to say, eight, eight or nine. And, you know, I would stand up and for them and say, you know, this is not how you treat people. This is not how you're supposed to treat kids. And, of course, that just made me a target because instead of just taking the abuse, I was I was getting in the way of it. And so she was just twice as mean to me. And would call me names. I mean, I was probably 10 or 11 and she would call me a slut, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> because I would hug friends, you know, or like she would just find anything that she could to make me feel less than. And I think that more than her words towards me, I was more invested in what she was doing to my siblings. I was unhappy and sad and I was also guilty because I felt like I couldn't protect, you know, the people that the little people that I wanted to protect. I couldn't make it stop for them. And you were 11 mm-hmm. at this time wanting to protect your younger siblings. Yeah. You had three younger siblings? Yeah. One thing that I thought was makes your story kind of even more complex is the physical setting of your home. Can you kind of describe what your house physically looked like? When it started out, it was a pretty normal house. And then my adoptive dad would start to do projects on the house and tear it apart or something would fall apart and it would be left to stay like that so that, you know, our dining room, the floor had a big hole in it. Animals would come crawling through it. But then you would walk into my parents' bedroom and they would have a brand new bedroom set because they got, you know, a lump of cash at one time or there was a new truck in the driveway, a truck that wouldn't even have enough seats to fill or to fit all of the children that they had. Like it was clear that parenting was not the priority. And so we couldn't bring friends over. We were embarrassed of our home. Like, it just wasn't, 
where the priority should have been of having a safe home for the kids whenever you can provide that was not something that they were concerned with. But they would make sure that they were taking care of for the things that they wanted. When we talk about sexual abuse, uh, and I, I hope you don't mind, but I'd love to kind of expand on that. Because I think when we talk about sexual abuse, it is becomes just about the act. But you mentioned something just now about your adopted dad began grooming you. Mm-hmm. And I know as an adult, you have a sense of what that looked like. What what did that look like? And it's interesting that you point out that as an adult, because as a kid, you have no idea. So I think that there's a point when you get older where you suddenly come to a realization where like what you thought was abuse that was this big, you know, smaller was actually way, way bigger because it usually starts ahead. And so for me, my adoptive dad would talk to me about inappropriate things. He would talk to me like I was one of his buddies or even like I was his wife. Like he would discuss sex. He would talk about other women being hot. And, you know, here I am at this point, I would have been closer to like nine or 10 is when that part of it started. And so what he did was make conversations like that normal for him and I, and then try to make that a source of pride for me. He'd say, oh, you know, other parents can't talk to each other like we can to make me feel like that was special instead of wrong. And so, you know, as an adult to look back on that and be like, how sick do you have to be to also get a kick out of or to have the forethought to know that if you're doing something wrong, you also need to make this child feel like it's a good thing so that they don't call any attention to it. And so that's how that began. And by the time I was coming closer to 12, it moved more into physical grooming where he would say, hey, let me give you a back rub. This would be so much easier if you didn't have a top on. Okay, I've given you a back rub. You should give me one with baby oil. You know, like just physical touching that didn't send up the red flags because nobody tells you when you're doing stranger danger in school, nobody tells you about that. You know, they don't say your dad's going to tell you that he's just trying to make your back feel better. But what he's actually doing is wholly inappropriate. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up, too, because statistically, when we talk about uh, any sort of sexual assault, that usually it's somebody you know, it's not somebody that's a stranger. And what I hear you saying is that that conversation isn't wasn't at the time at least being extended in those educational settings where they're talking about good touch bad touch there wasn't even the conversation on the table about what if this is a a loved one a um, a caretaker or a family member and also what if it's not a traditional bad touch like when you talk to children about whether it's okay you talk about body parts that are underneath their underwear Well, that hadn't started yet, but as an adult, I can look back and tell you that that was absolutely when it started, you know, like as far as him getting me comfortable with having my clothes off around him in his bed, you know, as a 12-year-old and having me comfortable with putting my hands on him in a way that should be reserved for marriage or boyfriend and girlfriend or like a partner, you know, like just him making things comfortable in my head that should never have been comfortable. And there's no teacher in the world that would have ever mentioned that possibility. They always just talk about if somebody touches you where you go to the bathroom, you know, like, but that's not where it begins. Yeah, this is from an adult that you look up to to be caring for you. Mm -hmm. How could you tell the difference? Right. And at this point, like, the relationship with my mother had deteriorated even further. I think that she knew that something was up and she resented me instead of doing anything about him. And so, you know, he fed off of that. He took advantage of that. The more that I could not talk to my mother or I could not go to her for anything, the more he said, well, you can always come to me. You know, let me take you. He would take me to like biker rallies and let me dress up and cut off short shorts and tight shirts at 11 and 12 years old and encourage it. And, you know, definitely treating me like I was a girlfriend, which... It's just crazy. It is crazy. It's so crazy. I remember when we started coming friends, I think, you know, that I I just felt like there was this unsaid thing between us where we got each other. You know, I was going through my own type of abuse at my house, and I just knew that I 
could talk to you or not talk to you and you got it. You you totally you just you understood without me having to explain myself. Tortured souls. <laughs> I also remember we would figure out how for you, for you to spend the night at my house and I just remember being so scared of your house and also not having the words for it, but just feeling like this is a place that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I mean, I'm sure that there was a vibe to it too. And plus, I mean, it just, you could walk in the door and you could see that it wasn't being kept up well. But also I think that you could tell that happiness didn't live there. You know, when family refers to us as children, they always say, you know, we didn't know what was wrong. We just knew that you kids were never happy. And I think that that's a huge sign in children They may not know how to put into words what's happening. They may not even know that what's happening is bad or wrong. Because for me, I thought that it was, like I said, a source of pride. But then I would go to school and cry. Or I would do anything I could to go stay somewhere else. So I feel like a big thing to look out for in these kids is, why are you sad all the time, even though you're telling me everything's okay? Because there's something is wrong. Something is going on. And a kid's not going to... I mean, you know, an abuser uses fear to keep you from reaching out. So a kid is not going to go and tell somebody something because they think that if I tell, then it gets worse. What was your experience with that? You said earlier that you had a sense that this was wrong, even though you didn't have the words for it, even as you were going up with your mom, that you were really a target for her. And then as the incest and sexual abuse started escalating in middle school, What was your experience talking to adults about it? I didn't reach out in middle school at all because I was told consistently over and over and over again, you know, if you make a call, because this would usually happen when there was beatings happening, you know, you were getting hit and you would say, I'm going to call Child Protective Services and they would say, go ahead. You know, if you get taken away from me, you know, you're going to get put somewhere that's going to be so much worse than here. You think you have it so bad. But I did try to reach out as a freshman in high school when um, it had escalated to sexual assault, like instead of inappropriateness. And it was actually after I had tried to tell my mom, she had done nothing about it, but I went to a teacher and the teacher let me talk to him about it. He let me get comfortable. And then when I started skipping school pretty often, you know, all of this stuff going on and you're getting older and you have the ability to run away, I did as much as I could. When I wasn't coming to class, he got angry with me. And so two months after I had disclosed to him, instead of like a mandated reporter should, which is disclosed right away, he waited until he was mad at me for not coming to class. And then he did it. And he didn't do it the way he reported. Right. But not to protective services. They didn't even bring a social worker in. They brought my mother into a parent-teacher conference Um, and then I remember sitting there and that teacher having his arms crossed and, you know, there's no love or comfort in this room. There's no, like, it's going to be okay. And he says, well, she told me that her father raped her now, technically true, but at 13, you, you don't know that the legal definition of rape can include multiple ways of being violated. And so all I knew in my head was, he's mad at me. There's nobody here that's going to help me. My mother's here. And so this is all going to get worse because I'm going to go home and get the crap beaten out of me. And I have to go home with her because they didn't bring in anybody that was there to tell me, you don't have to go home. We're going to take care of this. Yeah, I remember when I finally kind of told on my grandfather because I also had a sense that this is this something's not right. Some you know I don't think kids are supposed to be treated like this by adults. And I remember being in fifth grade and telling my fifth grade teacher, and she said, "Are you sure that you want to do this? Because it could be much worse for you." And for some reason, I had this like, "Yes, <laughs> I do want you." That there's got to be something. I don't – how could it be worse than this? And I know it can be worse than this in the in the foster care system. So they did bring my grandfather in and I remember he was so embarrassed and infuriated that I had exposed him. And sure enough, like I had to go home with that man mm-hmm. and the rage that he had 
around it was extraordinary. And then I got really cynical about it. And I would tell every year, go to a counselor about what was happening at home and was told the same thing. I just got really jaded. Like, what is the point of all of this? Can't you see my grades are failing? And, you know, you are an incredibly um, smart woman. And yeah, my grades were tanking as well. And I look back and I'm like, isn't isn't that wasn't that an obvious sign that something was going on? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I wasn't going to class. I somehow managed to keep my grades up. So I think that they didn't have that big red flag, but I wasn't going to school. And if a teacher tried to talk to me about why I wasn't going to school or any of this, I would be crying within 20 minutes, but I couldn't put into words why I was crying. Like clearly something was up. And of course, in that situation, I retracted. I was like, I never said that because in my eyes, I, I was like, I didn't say that. Well, I told him what happened, which is rape. But 13 years old, I didn't know that that was rape. So I was like, I never told you that. And I completely went back on it because I didn't want to go home and have it be so much worse for me. And so they sent me home. And so I never told anyone again. You know, absolutely not. And I haven't even told to this day all of the details to most of my family and friends. I don't think there's a single person on earth, except for Jess now, um, that has heard all of it because that just rocks a kid. When you finally get the guts to be like, something is wrong, something hurts, something's making me not want to come and do the thing that I love to do, which is learn, and making me want to crawl in a hole and die. And that person completely uses it, either uses it against you or handles it so poorly that it puts you in a worse situation. Yeah, it's like an impossible situation, I think think now when I talk to social workers or teachers at school, I get the sense that it is still a really hard situation for them because of the lack of options for placement for children. I think also, I think people know this stuff happens, but when it's looking you in the face, it's such a big thing. For a kid to say, my dad's raping me, that's huge. And like I, I feel like even a well-trained human sometimes can be like, I don't know how to hold this right now. Like, I don't know how to hold space for you. Right. And so if they're not trained, if their only training is you are a mandated reporter, you have to tell this, like, they really don't know how to handle that. And so I think that their instinct is going to go towards, let me make sure this is true. <laughs> and for some reason in their head, the way to do that is to bring in the abuser or the enabler to the abuse yeah, and ask. Yeah, like, you're going to be terrified to right. say to say anything suddenly you're being confronting you have no ally right. with you and at that point my mother i had told my mother about it and the reaction to that was god awful and so not only was i sitting here trying to deal with that situation as a kid with the teacher that was clearly like spitefully reporting but it was with the woman who had been telling me that it happened because it was my fault this whole time so she so she's almost feeling like you as like this young kid, her daughter at like 9, 10, 11, 12, and these these years that the sexual um, and emotional abuse began, that you're like the mistress. I didn't tell her it started. I, like, I didn't tell her about all of the earlier stuff, I think partly because I still hadn't even put two and two together that that stuff was part of the abuse. I still thought that that part was when my dad and I had a good relationship. This um, special relationship. Right. So I hadn't even told her about that. But I also didn't even tell her that the physical abuse had happened as many times as it had because when I told her about the one time, it was handled so poorly. Like she called my adoptive father and yelled at him over the phone, but she didn't comfort me not one bit and had him come to the house and sit next to me, you know, in the same space. And then asked me what I wanted to do about it. And I was 13. So I don't know that a lot of people realize this, but regardless of what abuse kids doled out, kids love their parents. And so – Yeah, you, you want to be protected. Like there's that eternal hope that maybe – It's going to be okay. Right. And so you cannot ask the kid what to do about the abusive adult because they're going to say, I don't want to lose my dad. Because she was saying, I can make him leave or we can let him stay and we can move your bedroom into another room so you can lock the door. Which do you want to do? So you're like almost exiled. 
I mean, it, it, the bedrooms were with everybody else. But yeah, basically, you just said, I am more comfortable with having this man in my house that my daughter needs to lock herself away from to protect herself than I am kicking him out. And if I'm going to kick him out, I need her to be the one that does it, which is crazy because I'm a middle school slash high school kid, you know, choosing what happens with the sexually abusive person in my home and not being offered any comfort, not being offered anything. And then, you know, very soon after that, she started with the, well, I told you not to, not to fall asleep in that bed because I fell asleep in my parents' bed, which was part of like a a room that a lot of us used to watch TV and hang out in. And yeah, I like vaguely remember right. that room. I like spent the night only a few times, but I, yeah, I just remember being so on edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, in her eyes, she had told me not to fall asleep in that bed, which is a big red flag. Like, why would you tell your daughter that she should feel unsafe sleeping in her parents' bed unless you knew that there was a problem and you ignored it? And so that turned into full out blaming me. And then she just started saying that it never happened at all. So I, I, when I hear that, I just think of this sense of betrayal. You had said before when we were talking offline that, that your mom actually spoke really well of you to other people. Yeah. Whenever I would try to discuss with other family members or family friends about how I just felt like my mom hated me and I just knew that she hated me. They would say, well, she always says nice things about you to other people. I'm like, well, that's that's almost worse, you know, because if she actually feels that way about me, she sure as heck doesn't treat me that way and she sure as heck doesn't talk to me that way. But then on the other side of it, it also meant that she knew that the way that she was treating me at home was wrong. And so it's not the face that she showed people on the outside. She knew that what she needed to show others was a doting mom, a mom proud of her her kid. So it's like the perfect family syndrome. Right. And so over and over and over again, every time they said that, it feels like a betrayal because it feels like, why can't you bring that good mom home? Yeah. Why don't I get that? Yeah. I don't get that version. I remember right. that I had been told that about my grandfather. You know, he similarly was very disparaging at home and made me feel like I was worthless. But then, you know, as an adult a few years ago, actually, I found out that he spoke very highly of me to everybody and it felt so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. why didn't I get that? You actually spent the night a few times at my house. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, I think I remember him really losing control with his rage when you were there. Most of the time, he pretty much just was snarky and said kind of mean things. Now, it's also totally possible that I was so used to horribleness that I'm just like, well, this is just normal life. I think Um, you were because (laughs) I would be like, I'm so sorry. And you'd be like, nah. (laughs) However, he did kind of lose it that time that we went for a walk in the morning. But I was I was in charge of Sea Turtle Patrol as a as a 13 year old. I was very proud of that. We lived on the beach by um, New Smyrna Beach. And so we would go look for sea turtle nests and make sure that the nests hadn't been disturbed. So I decided it was a good idea for Michelle and I to walk 13 miles to go (laughs) find some sea turtles. And he very unfortunately had to pick us up when we were too exhausted to walk the 13 miles back home. And was not too pleased about that. I think that's when you fell out of his good graces. <laughs> he banned me from the house, and it was your idea. <laughs> I know. <I'm> t- <laughs> it was a good adventure, though. And th- thankfully, we found a working a working payphone way back. Payphones. <laughs> what has been the hardest moment about all of this? I think the hardest thing to take away that I carry a little bit. Even though logically I know the reasons behind not reporting, not picking up that phone, not getting us out of that situation, I know that it's because I was scared. I know that it's because of fear that they put there. I know that there's a million reasons why it makes sense. That's probably the biggest thing for me is to know that I could have done one thing and made it all stop. For me, for my siblings, like how different would our life have been? But you did make a call. You did You did talk to your teachers. Right. But the teacher didn't go to CPS. I could have called CPS. You know, like, 
And I know, like, logically, and that's probably, like, just something that abuse victims deal with is that difference between what you logically know and what you still carry and you feel. I know that I did everything that I could see was an option as a, as a child. Yeah. You always wonder, could there have been just one little bit more? Could I have gotten us out of that situation? Could I have fixed it? And it's like so funny to be an adult and look back at that time because it does seem so like, oh, well, if I just call this other person. But I think we think about like women or men who are in domestic violence situations as adults. And it's like even then it's really hard to report and then add on your child. It it, it is just. It's the funny way that somehow victims feel guilty. I agree. I agree. It's like I'm betraying this person, this loved one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's guilt is a weird thing when you are an abuse victim because somehow you come out of it almost, it seems like, feeling worse than they ever will, you know? And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because I realized that by not talking about it, all I've done is let – them go on having a normal happy life and I'm the one walking around feeling like what if I had done this or what if I like I could have saved my brothers and sisters the trouble or I could have fixed this they're not worrying about those things so I need it needs to be put back on them but that guilt is just the guilt of not being able to protect siblings the guilt of not being able to fix her like what do I have to do to get her to see what she's doing so that she'll stop how can I get her to be a parent to me right At the same time as trying to mourn for, like, I guess I was lucky in the way that I didn't believe what she was saying about me. I knew I wasn't a slut at 11 or ever. And I knew I wasn't all these things she was saying about me. But I was so sad for the little girl that didn't have a mom, that was losing her mom over and over because I was a kid and you get hope. And so she would be nice to me for like 20 minutes and I would be like, I might have a mom. Oh, my God. Finally. Yeah. She's come back. Maybe she's realized that what she's been doing this whole time really sucks. And then, of course, two hours later, my heart would be shattered or two days later, it would be a mess again. And so it's like putting your hand on a hot stove and getting burnt over and over again. You feel real dumb and real guilty because you're like, why did I keep doing that? And so the victim is the one that walks away with all this guilt. Why couldn't I get her to see why she did something wrong? And to this day... I still could never get her to see, you know, that she did something wrong. Or if she does, she sure as heck won't admit it. And then also, <laughs> I was such a weird kid. I had this big, big world view, And so I, I felt guilty that the world had to have somebody like that in it. Wow. Like, like I felt like... <sighs> so your guilt extended not just to yourself, but then you felt guilty about not being able to protect your siblings and then it was like even more you literally took the burden of the world on your shoulders and was like this the world has to suffer because of these people i would even include your adopted father into this picture Mm -hmm. these people who are letting this happen i mean here in your story i think about you had mentioned that some of your family kind of did get a sense that something was going on and did not intervene Well, right. And when I've spoken to them, part of it's the time. You know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, you just didn't get involved in how other people were raising their children. And in this case, it was my aunt and my uncle lived the closest and saw us the most. So it would have been his sister. And you didn't, you definitely didn't interfere in how like family was raising their children. And because I was so scared to tell anybody any details, they didn't know the extent they just knew kids were unhappy. So it didn't seem in their eyes like a serious enough thing to cross those boundaries. And I think, of course, people still struggle with that a little bit. I think people are a little bit more open to calling somebody out when they think something is wrong now than they were 30 years ago. But there's still that trepidation, like, should I mind my own business? And unless there's a huge red flag saying that somebody's seriously getting hurt somehow it feels like maybe you should mind your own business. I think it's hard too because then it's like, well, what do I do? I don't know how to help. Hmm. Maybe it would be worse if they were with Child Protective Services. You know, I remember people telling me 
you know, when I reported in fifth grade and I was 10, people telling me, well, you only have eight years left (laughs) and you'll be 18 and you'll be on your own. And I just felt so alone and heartbroken. And then also it played on my mind because I was like, maybe I am crazy. Maybe this isn't a bad thing. Maybe I can't trust my instincts and what my gut is telling me. And as an adult, that meant that I got in numerous sexual assaults because I, when I felt like something was wrong or bad, or when I got that like instinct that this was some, some, that somebody was dangerous, I questioned myself like, oh, but when I was a kid, I was told over and over and over again that this abuse wasn't happening, that maybe I deserved it. So, you know, maybe, maybe what's this, this person is not as dangerous as I think they are. And it frustrates me. I, I'm dealing with like my own anger with myself because I'm like, how did I get myself in these situations so many times? And I, I think I personally hate when people say, oh, you're like you when they talk about sexual abuse victims, and they're like, you know, they just re-victimize themselves. And it's like, well, actually, no, nobody taught me that I had boundaries over my body. Mm-hmm. Nobody taught me that it was okay to defend myself. I didn't even know who good people and bad people were and good people who really truly loved me felt even scarier because it was that trap of what you were mentioning earlier with your mom that finally she came around and she was nice and sweet and then you know just a few seconds later she's gonna switch off and she's gonna be mean again and and like literally physically dangerous and so when people when really amazing people came into my life I it wasn't that I sabotaged it it was just like I can't trust this I know you're gonna leave and even now being married with my husband I remember when I first got married, I was anytime he came home from work, I would immediately think to myself, like, oh, my God, you're back. Like, I can't believe this. You came back. (laughs) Yeah, this is so crazy. And that was like a big tension for us, for me to learn how to relax because feeling loved just felt way more scary to me. And I wonder for you, like, what has learning how to because I what I hear is that you know how to love others. Because you have this deep empathy for others and compassion for others. But what has it been like for you to learn how to let yourself be loved in a really good, genuine way? I think the big thing to point out there is the genuine genuine and healthy way. Because I kind of almost had the opposite reaction where I wasn't scared to be loved. I just had a very screwed up like vision of what love looked like. I thought that it was what my adoptive father had showed me. And so I got into, you know, sexual situations with people that I was just clinging to because I thought maybe they loved me. You know, people didn't have to show me a whole lot before I was like, well, maybe you'll love me. And my mom doesn't love me. And the person who supposedly loves me hurt me and is gone now. So maybe you're going to love me. And so I let people get away with way more when it came to how they treated me or what I accepted like way more than than I should have. And I feel like I don't think that I learned how to love myself and respect myself enough to make that not okay until I realized how big the abuse was because I still hadn't. When did you realize how big the abuse was? I started to take foster care classes. I was drawn to being a foster parent and I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. In my eyes, I think that I wanted to be the person for kids that I never got. I wanted to be the the safe place. And so I started taking my classes and we were going through one of the days, you know, the list of things that happen to these kids that they get taken out of homes for. And as we were going down that list, we started discussing the more severe things that kids will get taken away for and the chances for parents to reunify are pretty much non-existent. And I started checking off boxes, yeah, all of the boxes. And so that was kind of the catalyst where it was like driving into a brick wall. And wow. so I started taking the brick wall down brick by brick and thinking, well, wait, was this okay? Yeah. Because all the way up until that time, I had kind of felt like being unaffected might be the way to cope. And so I just didn't think about it. And I didn't question. And nobody had told me that the things that had happened earlier in the process, like were bad. And so it wasn't until I sat down and really started questioning, would I let this happen to my daughter? Wow. That I was like, holy crap. Hell no. 
you know? And so that means that it shouldn't have been done to me. Wow. And so that was when, you know, I really started to break apart. So what is love? Because that sure as heck wasn't it. And I think that that's something that, you know, people that have been involved with sexual trauma, sexual, especially incest, need to know is that that is not what love looks like. And if you carry with yourself that that's what it's supposed to look like, you are forever going to get hurt. I think that takes so much strength, though, to, like, change. Like, how have you had that strength? Because it's like, I, for myself personally, like, it has been so hard because when I see, like, what love looks like, I don't even know how to, like, jump the bridge to get there because it just feels so – it feels like hope is a weapon. Mm Mm-hmm. I think for me, the hugest driving force for me to to make something different is that I wanted to make it different. Mm. You know, like I I don't think that I knew how to navigate to that place of I'm worth this and I shouldn't be treated this way. But I knew that A, I didn't want to continue that cycle and that if I let people in my life that were the same as I had had in my life, then the cycle was absolutely going to repeat. I didn't want to be a miserable person that made everybody else miserable and then I also just felt, I think that I was so determined that I wanted to make my life something. I wanted to make it something that put good into the world, that tipped the scales back a little bit. Yeah. Like, sorry about my parents. <laughs> like, can I can I be good enough to, like, fill that hole and maybe even overfill it, you know, with um, some good in the world? And I was so determined to have that positive effect that I was hell-bent on figuring out how I could be a person strong enough to do that. And part of that was, you know, having the right kind of love in my life. You know, if you are not a positive person, if you are not supporting me, I don't care what relation you are to me. Blood is not thicker than water. Like, I don't care. I want to take us back to, on that point, you've talked to me a lot about boundaries and reframing family members because there's so much weight put to the terms like mom, mm-hmm. father, dad, you know, even like stepdad, you know, in my case, my grandfather, or my mom or my dad, there's so much that goes into that word. And I want to take us back to a moment that you mentioned to me at a family reunion, where they were sh- sharing pictures, and your adopted dad came up in a picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I have not shared the details of this with family. I haven't told anybody really. Um, I have mentioned in passing every once in a while that there was every kind of abuse in my house because I just didn't want to put a name and a word on it because then it's real. Mm, If you tell somebody I got raped by my dad or my adoptive father, I should clarify, my dad's an amazing person, my biological dad. You found your dad later in life. Yeah. My bio dad, like I found him when I was in my 20s. We actually started really kind of connecting and he's amazing. But my adoptive father, you know, saying that out loud makes it real. So I hadn't told anybody any kind of like serious details. So a family member, you know, was going through these pictures and she picked up one that um, was of me standing next to this person, to my adoptive dad, and said, oh, look at how sexy he is with his 80s mustache oh God, or whatever. Nauseous. And I just got so sick to my stomach. And so just like, because I know she doesn't know, you know, I know that she never, gosh, she's the sweetest person on earth. She never would have said something like that. In fact, those pictures most likely never would have gotten pulled out of the box. But just that that retention of even once you feel like you've gotten over something, that little – those opportunities for hurt to creep up in life if you haven't been able to share your story. And that goes back to the only person that I'm protecting by not talking is the abuser. The yeah. only person that gets to walk around and have the normal life and not have to get sick to their stomach at a family reunion is the person who did the damage. And so as far as reframing their positions, the way that I kind of got myself out of that cycle of hope and hurt and hope and hurt and hope and hurt was I had to sit myself down and realize that Having a biological link to me does not earn you the right to call yourself my father or my mother. Wow. And if you have not performed that job, if you've never acted like a mom to me, you've never protected me, you've never given me affection, you've never – I mean it goes so much farther than just not being an affectionate person. But if you've never done the very basics of being a parent, you're fired. You don't get to keep the position. 
And what I then had to do is realize that they hadn't done that the whole time. And that means that they didn't have that position the whole time. In the first place. Right. And so instead of having to carry around this loss for a mother or loss for an adoptive father, now I could just say, well, they were just people. They were people I had to live in a house with that were really terrible people. And so if they're just people, I don't care that they're not here anymore. In fact, it's good because I don't have to be hurt anymore. And you can make that decision. You can decide, you know, I'd rather be parentless. I'd rather be, you know, to reframe their position as just a, a person and make it stop. I can say you don't get to use the fact that you had you gave birth to me as an excuse to keep me around so you can keep kicking me all through life. And like kind of showing you off, it sounds like. Well, yeah. In this weird way of like, we have this perfect family. I mean, what we're talking about in this conversation, you know, there's so many layers to it. There's the abuse, but there's also like the secrets. There's the betrayal, the neglect. Like, there's just so there's so much that goes into when there's a household of of child abuse, and then you know so much else that's happening outside of like this specific sexual abuse act and I think that's not part of the conversation enough and I'm so glad we're having this talk around like that the grooming and that long psychological process to get there is also part of the incest it's the emotional incest it's like the parentonizing a child to be like a partner and so like how what does forgiveness look like for you I think my version of forgiveness has been it's easier to forgive people for being fallible than it is your parents. And so I yeah. think that reframing not only gave me the power to say, you can't do this to me anymore, but it also gave me the power to say, you're allowed to screw up and you're just a person. And so now, I mean, I can go and I can be around my mother and I can be civil because she's just a person. And so she doesn't have that weight in my time in my life anymore. I can be happy and I can go after my goals and I can do the things she told me I couldn't do. And when she's around, I don't have to to apply the title of mom and all of the pain that comes with a mom screwing up to her. So she's a person that screwed up. And so we can talk about coffee or you can keep it. There's a boundary there that right. you set for yourself. Right. And so for me anyway, I don't think that I ever had this moment where I was like, oh, I forgive them, but I just made them human. And it takes the power away, but it also opens the door for more of an, an acceptance of the fact that, I mean, sometimes they don't do things right. And so as far as my adoptive father, I don't think he gets that grace. I think he should have been in jail. And he yeah. shouldn't have been around children, period. In her case, I think that she's a human that has problems with connecting with people, problems with honesty, manipulation, and those are human problems to have. So sometimes humans have those problems. And if she's not in that position of me looking to her to be a mom, then I can accept that part of it. I think this just makes me think about what you first said in this conversation about having compassion for the little version of you. I've been struggling personally in counseling. I feel maybe a sense of like resentment or kind of like it's hard for me to have compassion for that small version of myself because I think I'm still struggling with like why didn't I do more? And in my case with my grandfather, it's similar in that I was like, why can't I fix this? You know, he was so sick and so majorly depressed and had severe PTSD. And I just as a kid was always like, why can't I fix this? And, you know, he stopped eating towards the end of his life. So it was in this like really hard, complex way, you know, that he refused to eat. And it's like I couldn't be home anymore because he was so ugly and he had run off all of the homemates. He had had a stroke and broke his hip. So he really needed full-time care. But he kept running off everyone from the hospital. And I just remember thinking that my junior and senior year – it was just so hard for me to be home and around him because he was so mean. And now as an adult, I'm struggling because I'm like, well, was I complicit in, you know, his end of life suffering? But it's like, I have to just keep in mind that I was a kid. And I just 
respect you so much and admire you so much for having that ability because I think even just having compassion for our little selves is such like a victory over our abuse. I think you have to give yourself permission and grace for self-preservation because I did the same thing in high school. I didn't want to go home. I loved my brothers and my sister. I worried daily about what was happening to them. There were times that I would come home and watch my littlest brother, you know, get punched in the head and kicked. And I didn't want to leave them there. And so it was actually a driving force. I really wanted to get out of school, go to college, become a doctor so that I could make enough money so that I could come back and whisk away my, my siblings. I literally thought around the clock about how do I, how do I get them? How will the courts think that I'm a better place for them to be? And that's in the mind of a 17-year-old. You know, how do, I, how do I parent these three little kids myself? But I think that you also have this instinct to save yourself. And when home is a scary place, when it's a place that makes you feel terrible, um, when it's a place that wants, makes you want to kill yourself, self-preservation says find somewhere else to go. And so you pour yourself into school and work like I did. Find a boyfriend who probably isn't good for you, as I would learn later, definitely wasn't good for me, but it was a place to go. And so you have to give yourself some grace about that because, yeah, an adult might know I should have been there. But as a kid, you just knew I need to do what keeps me sane for like the next five minutes. It's survival mode. I love that there is so much redemption in your story that you're so focused on providing that home for young people who might be going through a similar situation or who are vulnerable to a similar situation i love your big heart for one worry less and building that safe place that you know you didn't have no i would have been so grateful for a home like the one that you're working on so Thank you on behalf of myself, but on behalf of everyone listening, you know, who has had a similar story. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.